0: All right, well it is a Friday, which means it's time for a news roundup with the team. We'll be looking back at what's been going on this week. We have a few items we're going to talk about, some some affordable housing and some news around the October 1 Memorial. So we'll get right into that. <laughs> Today is Friday, July 15th, 2022. I'm Sonia Cho Swanson. We've also got Scott Dickensheets, newsletter editor.
1: Hello, good morning.
0: And Lele Mohammed, our producer. Good morning. This is CityCast Las Vegas. All right, how's everyone doing this uh, beautiful Friday morning?
1: doing pretty good uh, i suppose one reason that uh it's been a, kind of a quiet news week is it's too hot to go out and do anything
0: <laughs> yes definitely can't get
1: out there and create any news it's so i'm just staying home on a low boil
2: Mm-hmm. definitely feeling that low boil my room is the hottest room in the house so i've no. had a bit of a cranky week in my overheated room
0: uh yeah i I'm feeling you. I'm feeling you. Uh, it's been it's been kind of a tiring, slow week, but here we are. So first up in the news was this item I wanted to talk with you all about. It's about actually about an affordable housing project that the city wants to build up near Rome and Decatur. There was a kind of a town hall that they held for like local residents, and there were just a lot of divided opinions. I don't know if you guys have been up there. You know that where that big empty lot is next to the Walmart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's where they want to build it. So I'm kind of curious, if you were a, a resident of this neighborhood, what would you be yelling into the mic at this town hall? What would be your stance on on having a, housing, a low-income housing development come to your neighborhood?
2: Well, I have a lot of family that live in Centennial Hills, and they do live next to kind of one of these uh, high-occupancy neighborhoods or high-occupancy developments. And there is quite a lot of crime in there but I don't think that that's a reason to not build affordable housing I think that there's a lot of people in the valley that need affordable housing I think maybe the focus should be on how to make these communities more secure and answer those those questions and those concerns Mm
1: -hmm. yeah I'm I'm with Layla on that I I would try and sort of uh, leash my nimbyism as much as I could Mm -hmm. um and on the one hand, you you know, if you're a homeowner who's half a million dollars into your house, you, you can't not think about the implications of that. But if you're a human being, you have to realize that there are a lot of people who cannot sink half a million dollars into a house. And, you know, we all have to sort of make way for each other. And if it means, you know, shaving a few thousand dollars off the value of my property, I'm, I'm fine with that if people get affordable place to live.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's. That's very big hearted, Scott. Not not everyone, I think, in the in the town hall meeting felt that way.
2: Yeah, definitely not.
1: Oh, no, no. Believe me, I've I've covered some meetings like that in the past as a journalist. And I'm I'm familiar with the, uh, the sort of like the very vocal uh, nature of homeowners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think implicit in every argument by the you know by the homeowners is like, well, it wouldn't be good for this neighborhood traffic, this crime, that schools, this and that. Implicit in that is like the assumption that there's some other place where those factors wouldn't obtain, but that's not true. Anywhere you put one of these places, it's going to have an impact and it can't always be like, you know, it better impact somebody besides me. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you have to absorb the impact too.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. And, you know, back to that point about housing prices, I did do a little background reading and there was a study put out by NYU that did a review of the research And it actually showed that low income housing doesn't necessarily impact the value of local neighborhoods. What actually this is kind of startling, if a low income housing project is put into like a a middle or high income area, the value will stay the same or the value of the nearby homes can actually increase. But if you put a low income housing project into a lower income area, that's when property values can actually start to decrease. Which really speaks to me about those like cycles of wealth and poverty, right? Like it's just (laughs) Definitely Man. And Centennial Hills is, I would say, a fairly like middle to high income area. So I I would imagine that the prospects for the neighbors in that neighborhood could actually be pretty good.
2: I think so, too. There wouldn't be kind of the food desert issue that we've been seeing with developments Mm -hmm. downtown and places that aren't near any viable food resources or supermarkets there's tons of supermarkets out in centennial hills it's a nice neighborhood quiet neighborhood Mm -hmm. so i think there is some real potential to have a low-income housing development do well there right
1: if only those neighbors read the uh, scientific studies
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly they were deep in the white papers
2: i'll send it to my family
0: yeah um I think back to Scott's earlier point about like homeowners getting up in arms about like whether this will shave a few thousand dollars off of their home values. It's just kind of unfortunate that like so much of like American wealth is placed in our homeownership. Right. Like we just it feels like the stakes are way too high. Yeah. And if we could sort of find a way like sort of broadly across society to to, like lower those stakes, maybe maybe the presence of a low income housing community wouldn't be such an issue to begin with.
1: But because it is that way. I mean, I think a lot of value judgment attends, uh, you know, what you can afford and what you can't afford. And like I remember vividly back in the in the mid '80s, I was covering a planning commission meeting where somebody wanted to put a low income, ha- uh, you know, apartment unit in a neighborhood, and one of the residents got up and said, "People who live in apartments burnt, you know, set fire to telephone poles because they can't afford TVs for entertainment." Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think there's, I mean, America always has had. Sort of a really conflicted, you know, relationship with its, its working class and its lower middle class, and so, and it just plays out in these kind of, you know, conflicts around neighborhoods.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my generation is on the path of never being able to even afford to buy a house. So, <laughs>
0: oh no.
2: I'm very much so in support of affordable housing, and I mean, if your property value goes down a little bit think of the good it will do to so many families, to the 200 plus families that will be able to live in those units.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And just I think that what that does for the city overall, you know. Um, So also on the subject of low income housing, there's been a, a, a very, very small house community in the news lately because a group called the New Leaf Community has been trying to build tiny houses for the unhoused population in Las Vegas. But they've run into some roadblocks. I think they even had their tiny homes demolished by the city lately, right? Is that what you've been reading in the news, Scott?
1: Yeah, the uh, I, they were torn down this spring. I, I don't remember how many units. I think it was a small number, like four to six, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and the city said that they didn't, you know, they didn't have the proper sanitation. They didn't meet the right zoning regulations or and the, the, the various codes that apply. And so they, they tore them down this spring and the New Leaf community people are trying to reestablish that that community and argue that, you know, this is a safe and uh, reliable way to help the unhoused. But so far right now, North Las Vegas is sort of sticking to its guns and saying, you know, this doesn't have the sanitation hookups, running water, uh, you know, but it did have, what it did have was, you know, compost toilets and a bunch of volunteers who were helping keep the area clean and and basically help service this, this idea. Mm-hmm. And so I guess we have, once again, a sort of a conflict between The needs of people and these sort of like official structures that are there to regulate how we interact.
2: Mm -hmm. And to my understanding, I think the New Leaf project, we're trying to work with the city to see what they need in permits and running water and getting all of that started. But I really do think in communities like Sacramento, who have successful tiny house communities for the unhoused populations. It really does need to be an effort from the city and hmm. from the county to get these communities going. I think in Sacramento, there's even one in a city parking lot. Wow. And they have like running water and they're allowed pets and they have um, single units and units for couples. And with all of this stuff, it it's really hard for a volunteer organization to get something like that started and have the right permits and get sewage and running water. I can't imagine that they can get all of that done without the city's support.
0: Right, right.
1: And in the coverage I've read of it anyway, there's not there's not much sense of the city saying, "Hey, we'll meet you halfway or whatever." It's, it's sort of like they just, you know, sort of tap their zoning regulations and say, "You you don't meet these criteria." Yeah. And so, but I I agree with Layla 100% that it's going to have to be a more of a partnership than one side comes all the way to the finish line by themselves.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Right, right. I mean, in a state, in a city that has a deficit of affordable housing numbering in like the thousands, solutions like these really seem to make sense. I mean, these are low budget, simple structures for shelter that are desperately needed. But at the same time, I feel like I can kind of see the city's Point of view that it's, it's you know it could be a public health hazard just waiting to happen that there that there are minimum standards for building codes and and livable spaces for a reason, so to your point, Leila, if we could see the the city and its nonprofit working together, it would it would be amazing. But I think they've actually taken a more adversarial route. I mean, I, I, from what I've heard, they're actually going through the courts right now to to fight this. Yeah,
2: another another concern was that there was no path for emergency vehicles to get onto. So there, there's definitely a lot that needed to be done to make the community safer, but it was a start to something that, frankly, the city isn't working on or doesn't seem to be working on really to house these people and get something for them so they don't have to worry about shelter and they can worry about getting their other needs and food and taking care of themselves. So it's kind of like a mixed bag of they were trying to do something good, but they do need help from the city at some point to get all of these permits and regulations set so they can actually do it in a way that the city's not going to just come through and tear it down and people aren't going to lose what they have.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, one suspects that when these zoning regulations were enacted, the social problems were much different than they are now mm. they probably didn't allow for the sort of measures that are needed in instances like this
0: right i mean one would hope that a tiny house like this wouldn't have to be somebody's permanent living structure but but more of a transitional space where they can get on their feet mm-hmm. um, and then and then move on to something a little more stable with you know a flushing toilet and better access you know to for emergency vehicles and and a, a connection to the electricity grid but, exactly well, let's move on to the next topic, because the other item that's been in the news lately is the October 1 memorial. So a special panel from the county is actually looking for public input on a permanent October 1 memorial to honor the, the victims and the responders to the shooting that happened. So I'm curious if you were able to send some input to the county, what would you want to see in an October 1 memorial? Mm.
2: I think I would leave that to the survivors and maybe people who were directly affected. I mean, as a community, we were all affected, but I I wouldn't be comfortable sending in my input personally um, because I wasn't at the festival and didn't have family members who were affected. But I'm glad to hear that they're reserving places on the committee for survivors, first responders, family members, and getting those input from them in the community to hear what they need and what they would want out of a memorial.
1: I kind of feel somewhat the opposite in the sense that if I was in charge, I guess my suggestion would be to listen to the input and then then hire somebody who lives like 2,000 miles away Hmm. who doesn't have a stake in how it comes out, Mm. who's only there to sort of create the most real forward-looking monument that they can, because there are a lot of stakeholders here. I mean, something like this, on the one hand, you would have to, like, grieve for the victims, acknowledge the survivors, celebrate the people who helped, you know, recognize the first responders. That's a lot to ask a monument to do Hmm. and still be a coherent emotional experience. And I'm thinking, for instance, of the uh, Vietnam Memorial in, in Washington.
0: Scott, can you describe that memorial for folks who haven't been?
1: Yeah, it is basically sort of a long, shallow, V-shaped uh, thing of black granite with the names of all 58,000 deceased servicemen, you know, military people who died in, in the Vietnam conflict. That's all it is, and it's a very simple, pure, essential experience. But there was an effort at the time to also accompany it with more conventional statues of soldiers in you know military poses or whatever, because you wanted to you wanted to honor the sacrifice of the of the soldiers. But I think the clarity and the emotional depth of the wall itself did all of that, mm-hmm. and it invited you to bring to it whatever whatever richness of political opinion or sorrow or whatever it was that you felt. It didn't dictate to you how to feel. Right, and I would hope that any monument to, to this, because there are so many different things that it could be about, Mm -hmm. you know, it has that sort of same conceptual clarity and, and simplicity.
0: Right, right. Because like it or not, I mean, this has also become part of the narrative around gun control. And that's one of the hot button issues in our society today. The same way that Vietnam had become such a politicized issue back in that era, I think you're right to think about the political nature of a monument for this one as well.
1: I just hate to see a committee sort of try and please everybody and end up with something that doesn't actually work for as a big civic gesture to, you know, the loss of the community and the people involved uh, suffered.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Well, one thing that I would like to see, even though I don't really consider myself a stakeholder, but I would like to see the names of all the victims present on the monument. I think I've, I've visited that Vietnam Memorial as well. And there's something really powerful about about seeing the names and seeing even somebody walk up and just point to a name and overhearing them say, like, you know, this was my grandfather, or this was my uncle, or this was my great uncle. Um, and the way that like generations can come and, and see that memorial and see that that family member there.
2: There's so much potential for a healing moment for the community.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, however, it turns out, we'll be sure to go visit and pay our respects. Let's pivot to something a little lighter. It's been a freaking hot week. <laughs> what I want to know what's uh, what are in your plans for this weekend to stay cool or just to uh, kind of be little hermits over the weekend?
2: I think for me, I'm gonna try to find a pool to jump into. I feel like I my I need a whole body relief of yeah just in water and to cool myself down but other than that i honestly think i'm gonna stay inside do some housework hang out with my sister because every time you step outside you kind of wonder anyone who's outside you look at them and you're like how are you dealing how are you in this heat like are you okay and then you realize you're also outside and yeah. how am i okay <laughs> so i think i'm gonna try to stay inside for the most part this weekend i think that's wise
1: yeah every time I step outside, I feel like that scene from Terminator, where the, the nuclear heat wave just melts people <laughs> as it goes through. Um, so our, our plan actually this weekend is we're going to go spend a little time around a lake in California and Ooh, just nice. where it's at least a few degrees cooler. Of course, it'll cost us like a mortgage payment's worth of gas, but <laughs> um, but it's worth it to, to get to a place where you know you don't feel that sort of nuclear fry when you go outside. Yeah
0: uh-huh. oh, that'll be awesome. Well, enjoy your lake trip, Scott.
2: I will. What are you doing this weekend, Sonia?
0: Well, so I am actually going to go shopping with a friend. We're going to go thrift shopping, kind of do some vintage shop pop-arounds, which thankfully they're all air-conditioned, so it's uh, an indoor endeavor. Mm -hmm. Um, And then actually there's a, a recipe for lemonade that my partner and I have discovered lately that we love. So what you do is actually you throw in a whole lemon, like skin, like, peel, rind, seeds and all into a blender with some mint I think it's actually like I want to say two or three lemons and uh, you throw that in with a little ice and a little sugar and something about having like the kind of bitter zest in there with the lemonade makes it really complex like really lovely icy cold minty treat for summer so I think we're going to blend up a batch of that for the weekend.
2: Ooh that sounds amazing I might have to swap yeah. that out for my boba addiction.
0: Yes it's really good.
1: I don't know if I would enjoy a drink that's more complicated than I am.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll make you some and bring it over, Scott. How's that?
1: (laughs) Just send it to the lake.
0: I'll do that. That's right. USPS. It'll get there someday. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Thanks, guys, for a great news roundup today. It's always a pleasure talking with you about the news. Happy weekend, y'all.
2: Happy weekend. You too.
0: All right, that is all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our producers this week were me, Sonia Cho Swanson, Leilu Muhammad, and Lizzie Goldsmith. We love you, Lizzie. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets, and our hosts are David Figler and Vogue Robinson. Music this week is by OG Moose, Epidemic Sound, and All the Kimonos. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the Nguvi, the Southern Paiute people. If you enjoyed the show, we really hope you love the show. Please go tell a friend. Send them this episode. And then go give us some stars. Rate the show. Leave us a review. And then you can subscribe to our morning newsletter. It's amazing. You're going to love it. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Take care and have a great weekend, everyone.
2: Sorry, having cat issues. Oh, all
0: good. All good. I figured I figured that was a <laughs> that was a feline feline interaction over there.
2: Our guest on the roundup. Yeah. <laughs>